Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week, the podcast where we take the articles from damninteresting.com, tell you all about them, and hopefully bring you some laughs along the way. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Well, Popular Mechanics is pleased to let you know, uh uh-oh, scientists used human genes to make monkey brains bigger. Whoa. Mm. Like, that- I feel like (laughs) I've seen a movie about this. (laughs) The subhead is, that can't be good. Mm. Uh So yeah, we're all aware of what (laughs) the whole WTF response to that headline is. No one's Um, glorifying this. (laughs) (laughs) No, we're just reporting the news and adding a healthy (laughs) dose of caution here. But they are reporting that scientists have spliced human genes into the fetus of a monkey to substantially increase the size of the primate's brain, and it worked. Oh, all right. Researchers from Germany's Max Planck Institute of Molecular Cell Biology and Japan's Central Institute for Experimental Animals. (laughs) So first of all, Germany and Japan at it again. Right, Uh, right. (laughs) (laughs) And these bright minds introduced a specifically human gene, ARHGAP11B, into the fetus of a common marmoset monkey, which caused the enlargement of its brain's neocortex. Now, if you're familiar with the brain, the neocortex is the newest part of the brain to evolve. This outer shell makes up more than 75% of the human brain and is responsible for many of the perks and quirks that make us uniquely human, including reasoning and complex language. It's like the candy coating outside the nougat. Exactly right. (laughs) So this also calls to mind, um, if you guys are Futurama fans, there was a particular monkey that could speak and went to college and it was a surprisingly emotional arc. But the history of brain development, at least in the primate world, traces back to not long after our hominid ancestors branched off the evolutionary tree of our current chimpanzee cousins. Their brains underwent a rapid expansion and nearly tripled in size over a span of three million years. And hominids' brains grew so fast that they became cramped in the slowly evolving craniums, which caused the distinctly human folding of the neocortex into wrinkles. So previous studies have showed that this gene, when unnaturally expressed in mice and ferrets, also caused an enlargement of the neocortex. But this was the first time the gene was used in a non-human primate. So I'm hoping this was all done to kind of explore, you know, and backtrack human evolution. But they've been doing this to a few animals and now we're in the monkeys. Yeah, I mean, that sounds very much like, oh, no, this is the perfectly legitimate scientific reason we're doing this. And oops, we made a massive moneymaker industry of servants. Like, it just, (laughs) like, I don't know. (laughs) Alarmingly, the scientists are calling these human-monkey hybrids, quote, transgenic non-human primates, which may be enough, as the article notes, to ring the alarm of any doomsdayer. Yeah. (laughs) And it certainly raises a lot of ethical questions when doing experiments on primates, let alone introducing human genomes into other animals. So because of this, I guess to sort of make a nod to ethics, the researchers limited their study to monkey fetuses, which were taken out by (laughs) C-section after growing for 11 days. And the co-author said in the press release, 
allowing the experiment to go past the fetal phase would be irresponsible and unethical. I see. Okay. That's right. We murdered infant <laughs> monkeys because it would be unethical to let them grow <laughs> yeah, up. Yeah. To, just to restate my understanding, uh, we took monkey fetuses, injected them with human brains, and then aborted them because otherwise it would be unethical. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. You guys are basically getting it. Yeah. Wow. And, you know, I get that they're pushing the envelope here and I'm really not clear on what the application is other than to maybe, you know, enhance it for our own use. But I don't know. I'm going to say maybe we should just pause a little bit. Uh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, and it sounds like they've already got a skull size issue to begin with. I mean, they're talking about the brain starts getting bigger and therefore it has to mm-hmm. wrinkle. So really, they need to be working on like skull modifications. <laughs> Before they start messing with brains. Who knows? Maybe we'll start having monkey servants that have part of their brain housed outside of their skull because what are rules anymore? Right, right. right. (laughs) (laughs) And I love that they kept having these nods to like, you know, to be ethical, to be responsible. I'm like, nothing about this really. It almost is mocking. It's just like, oh, we were ethical. Yeah. (laughs) And for all you social justice warriors who are going to cry foul, look, we did it on fetuses and we didn't even let them be born. So, okay, okay. Oh, popular mechanics giving us the real news. And uh, maybe we should, I don't know, keep an eye on what Germany and Japan are doing with their science. It's the two kids in science class where you're like, you guys don't get to be partners. Like, you just, you know? <laughs> Pick somebody we else. S- that's right. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. So I'll lighten it up a little bit with this article from Nerdist.com. It is titled, An Oral History of LOL. Oh. Yeah. So I'll ask first, uh, how do y'all pronounce it out loud? Is it like lol, lol? Do you actually laugh? What what do y'all do? My droll response when I'm not really laughing and I'm being sarcastic is lol. But if it's like a grudging nod to, okay, that was kind of funny, I'll say lol. I try really hard not to say it at all. Like, I, I just instinctively, I'm like, you can't read that out loud. It's, it, you just can't. What are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, it's, it's Netspeak. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, if it's out loud, aren't you just laughing out right. loud? Like, then? if I'm laughing, like just... I'm laughing. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's interesting how the usage has changed over time. And that's what we're going to dig into in this article. And that was mostly for my curiosity, because I'm going to be saying LOL a lot. Right. right okay. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> phrases like ASL and TTYL might have bit the dust post chatroom era, although I personally still say TTYL occasionally. But there's one term from the early days that continues on as a major part of our lexicon, which is LOL. It's an acronym, a verb, and it literally means fun in the Dutch language, which I did not realize. So when exactly did it hit the World Wide Web? It depends on who you ask. There is a former Canadian student named Wayne Pearson who claims he coined the phrase in the early to mid-1980s. He says that he used it on a now-defunct bulletin board view line, and it was in response to a friend making him truly laugh out loud. And (laughs) he believes that LOL spread across the platform and into other platforms as view line users moved to Genie and AOL, but there's no record, unfortunately, of Pearson's initial usage, and he even admits that he doesn't expect anybody to believe his story. (laughs) But... We can find the first documented use of LOL in Fido News, which is a newsletter that's still in print today. 
A May 1989 edition featured pre-emoji icons to convey a wide range of emotions along with several initialisms like LOL and there were other familiar phrases like BRB, BTW, but there's an image here of the Fido News list of emoticons and there's a number of very fun ones I haven't seen in forever like devil slash guilty which is right bracket colon and then right pointy bracket Mm. uh, which gives you a little (laughs) devil horns with the sly little (laughs) smile. Another one is hug which I haven't I'm not sure I even knew about it's just two closed brackets like two arms I guess. So it's kind of almost like ASCII art. Yeah exactly and there's U for just a glass capital Y for a wine slash cocktail glass Uh, apparently H was just Huh? Back in the day? (laughs) Uh, Anyways, that was very interesting. This comes all the way back from 1989, and there's a bunch of others in the article you can check out. But the Oxford English Dictionary confirms the earliest documented use of LOL on Usenet as a 1993 post about walking out of the movies. And the text says, lol, dot, 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 damn, that's even worse. Ba, ha, 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 ha. And that's with a space (laughs) between each ba and ha. So the OED also reveals that the San Diego Tribune also mentioned LOL in a 1993 article and says that someone who cracks a joke might get an LOL in response. (laughs) This may not be the first instance of an article deeming LOL a rising catchphrase, but this is kind of around the time that confirms its expansion into the public consciousness. Mm -hmm. And this ascent took place long before we had free unlimited text messages and microblogs actually had character limits. So it's no surprise that people gravitated towards shortened forms of communication. Mm -hmm. PhD candidate of linguistics Rachel Elizabeth Weisler offered Nerdist a deeper perspective on why LOL and other acronyms became critical components of internet and mobile language. She says the whole point of language and communication is about getting what you need to say to the other person. You want to do it fast. You want to do it clearly. And one assumption is actually that children or younger generations were using shortened acronyms like LOL and ROFL, which I always pronounce in my head as Raffle. Yeah, Raffle. Mm -hmm. But the research shows that adults are actually the ones using them more in text form, which may be because, you know, back in the days when you had a flip phone and you had to press a button to get one letter, Mm -hmm. you might want to do all these different shortcuts cuts and it just kind of sticks. Mm-hmm. But the subsequent rise of modern social media websites like MySpace, Facebook, and Twitter, which were 2003, 2004, and 2006, respectively, uh, which kind of, yeah, blew my mind thinking about. That's so recent. I know, right? Yeah. (laughs) And around 2017, the first instances of lolcats and lolspeak began to surface on 4chan. And lolcats would feature images of cats doing funny or adorable things for, I guess, any listeners who are not familiar with it. We know what lolcats are. If you don't, just Google it. It's a fun time. Uh, and so lolspeak became its own language with accepted spelling, syntax, grammar, and even font choices, which mm-hmm. led to academic analyses and lolcat itself becoming a part of the Oxford English mm-hmm. Dictionary in December of 2014. So it's largely associated with countries where English is a predominating language, but there's also versions of LOL that show up around the world. Uh, People in France use MDR, which stands for Mort de Rire or Died of Laughter. (laughs) So the question is, you know, why do we love the phrase so much? How has it survived the test of time? And if anyone knows the answer, it's Gretchen McCulloch, who is a internet linguist and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Because Internet, Understanding the New Rules of Language. And she told Nerdist, there's all sorts of words that get invented at any given point, and only a few of them take over and become a part of cultural consciousness. And a few factors have been proposed by Alan Metcalf in his book, Predicting New Words. 
One of them that I think applies to LOL is that in order for something to really catch on, it shouldn't seem too clever. It should just seem kind of unremarkable. Mm. And so sometimes people come up with really clever acronyms or really clever new words, and everyone's like, oh yeah, that's really clever. Then no one actually uses it because it seems very sort of self-important to use, which I think is a pretty interesting point. Yeah, it's too cutesy. I can see that for sure. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. But she believes that lol is very functional. It expresses something that didn't quite have a way of being expressed before in an obvious sort of way. And there's a lot of things in what she thinks of as the lol family that all became more popular in internet writing. Like haha, which kind of existed before the internet, but wasn't popular in the same sort of way. And I don't know about y'all, but for me, like, I feel like all of these different things are have very different connotations. Yeah. Yeah. If you're using ha ha ha, he he, or if you're doing the lol 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 thing. Um, <laughs> if you've debased yeah. yourself to that point. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> McCullough says that there's this tendency for LOL to become a bit aspirational. So your friend sends something that's funny and you're not quite in the mood to laugh. You could send LOL, even though you're not necessarily laughing, to say that was funny. According to human estimators who've looked at laughter, you know, the uh, human laughter estimators. Oh, yeah, uh, those guys. Only, yeah. yeah, yeah. We only really laugh 20% of the time at something that's an actual joke. And if you look at how people laugh in conversation, it's often just to acknowledge each other or taper over in awkward moment. Mm-hmm. And you're laughing really to build solidarity with each other. Despite the many additions to the LOL family, LOL appears to be here to stay. Facebook believes that LOL died in 2015, apparently, but that proclamation Hmm. was based on use within their website alone and a small, specific set of data. And I can tell you personally, having been on Twitter a lot recently, that LOL is alive and well. Yeah, for sure. Uh, It's not on Facebook because who's really cracking a smile when they go there anymore? (laughs) Yeah, very true. Very true. Well, and the demographics of Facebook skew a lot older now, too. Yep. Mm -hmm. And we all know adults don't laugh. I mean, there's no sense of humor for the 40 and up crowd, right? Guys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so there tends to be a strict divide between casual slash informal language and professional language, which is of particular interest to Weisler, who specializes in African-American vernacular English and other minoritized or marginalized English varieties. And she says that all these language varieties are valid, and the crux of societal beliefs about what is standard or professional is historically established by white people. In fact, Mm -hmm. both Weisler and Calhoun note that black linguists are overwhelmingly rare across the board, and Mm -hmm. LOL is unique in that it's a universal term that spans across internet users from all socioeconomic levels. Hmm. So as our world becomes increasingly virtual, the lines may falter or blur between internet and professional language. I don't know, man. If I get a business email that's signed with LOL, I think I'm still going to take that less seriously. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I'll, I'll cop to occasionally I will drop an LOL in like an internal email right. to like my team. Like if we're like, hey, clients still haven't gotten back to us with their edits, LOL. But right. again, yeah. that comes down to like my overwhelmingly sarcastic usage of LOL. Right. You're not a, genuinely laughing. <laughs> no, no. It's like the elbow nudge of like, you get me? Uh-huh. Yeah, absolutely. And it goes on to talk about this actually, which is that in these more informal settings like in Slack or Gchat, you can sometimes find LOL slipping into internal communications. But the author here in this interview is expressing that they think that the lines will always be there because people are interested in maintaining the social hierarchies that are created 
by deeming certain languages professional and other languages as inappropriate, mm -hmm. which is a power thing. You know, people at the top can say the way I talk is professional, so everyone else needs to speak, text, and email like me. Right. But, you know, that's one of the things that's hinted at here, which is that you never know, maybe in 100, 200 years from now, assuming we all survive, you could see these terminologies getting blended into professional conversation as they become normalized and... Yeah, I'm looking, I'm waiting for the press release that's like, GMC Motors lulled today as Tesla, you know, I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> like, I feel like I'm, I'm going to be that old person who's just like, no, I refuse to <laughs> be involved in this changing world. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure I'd be there with you if I'm being completely honest. Yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. Well, this one comes from JSTOR. It's called In Phytoremediation, Plants Extract Toxins from Soils. Ooh. Yeah, it's, it's cool. It starts in the tiny town of Cabin Creek, West Virginia. In the 1930s and 40s, a local oil refinery did what oil refineries often do and contaminated the soil and water supply with petrochemicals. Fun. Classic oil. They ceased operations in 1954, but more than 40 years later, researchers were still finding unsafe levels of toxins. And unfortunately, cleaning up petroleum in particular is difficult because it's a complex blend of chemicals, and a lot of remediation techniques are targeted to binding and removing one particular type of molecule. So it's like you have to process this thing 15 times to get each different component of the petrochemicals out. And Ooh. the government knew about the problem, but had kind of stuck their heads in the sand about it for 40 years, hoping that some sort of miracle technique would come along, but it hadn't. So they agreed to let these researchers try something radical, which was let plants do the work. The process is called phytoremediation. It's a subset of bioremediation, meaning the use of any biological organism to break down or remove waste. And generally speaking, scientists in this field have focused on microbes because I guess we're just kind of biased toward animal life over plant life. <laughs> but in fact, some of the biggest successes have come from plants. Yay. Yeah. So take the Cabin Creek oil refinery. Researchers planted more than 15,000 poplar trees on the site in the spring of 1999. And by 2006, they found that levels of gasoline had dropped by 82% in the soil and 59% in the groundwater. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And levels of toluene, which is a smelly solvent found in paint and nail polish remover, had dropped 90% in soil and 80% in water. So, hey. I mean, these trees did an amazing job. And on the one hand, it took seven years, whereas, you know, sort of mechanical remediation stuff would have been very quick. But it was insanely cheap. It cost just $80,000 for the initial planting and $20,000 per year for sort of irrigation and maintenance. Whereas mm -hmm. traditional remediation methods like incineration or soil venting would have cost about $65 million for that one <gasps> site. Wow. Yeah. Plus you get trees. Yeah, I exactly. Mean... Like, it's fantastic. <laughs> and there was a funny thing where, like, a few months after they planted the trees, like a third of them had these brown drooping leaves and were basically dying. And they're like, oh, no, these toxins are killing the plants. And then they went in there and were like, oh... No, we just didn't water them enough. Yeah. <laughs> they dug up the dead trees, planted new ones, and then put in an irrigation system. And it was like, yeah, the trees are doing fine now. <laughs> but phytoremediation isn't just good for human-made disasters. It's also good for things like algae blooms in lakes and rivers, which, you know, if we're being honest, is still the side effect of a human-made problem, namely fertilizer runoff, right? It makes the mm -hmm. water too nutritious. And so these huge floating blobs of algae form, and then they choke mm -hmm. off everything else. So pooling excessive nutrients in the local water system is called eutrophication. And one team in Canada tried to combat it with a phytoremediation technique called a floating island. And it's exactly what it sounds like. They created a large buoyant substrate 
and planted a bunch of cattails through it so that their root systems extended down into the water and they could pull nitrogen and phosphorus out of it. And Mm. in that case, it was more a question of delivery because the plants themselves didn't really need to be anything special. They just needed to be evolutionarily superior to the algae at sucking up the nutrients. Right. There wasn't any poison. It was just we got to feed something. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. there's too much food around. Mm -hmm. And that experiment was a small one. But when the researchers applied the data to a larger site with eutrophication problems called Pelican Lake, they estimated that covering just 5 percent of the lake surface with floating islands would reduce the phosphorus in the water by half. So it's super effective. And the only reasons they can kind of justify as to why people aren't doing this is they just sort of don't believe it works. Like, they're like, this isn't possible. You plant a bunch of trees and it's all better. Come on, go on. Come on, hippie. Yeah, exactly. And it does take a long time. They're like, oh, we don't want to wait for seven years for this to be cleaned. We're just going to fight for seven years about how expensive it is and then not do anything. Uh, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> and of course, because they're scientists, they're not just relying on natural selection or even hybridizing these plants to make them more efficient. One team from the University of Washington created what they called a transgenic plant, which is really funny because that's the second time we've had this word today. Mm. And it had been genetically modified with a gene normally found in mammal livers. Okay. Yeah. And the gene codes for an enzyme that's good at breaking down toxins, which is why it's found in the liver. And in fact, the popular trees with this gene inserted were 30 times better at (gasps) removing trichloroethylene from water and three and a half times better at removing benzene from the air. So oh, Okay, that's transgenics that I can get behind. Right. Like, stay away from the brain stuff, but we have targeted toxin filter genes in the liver. Go for yeah. it, man. Give, give a tree a liver. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and then they also have used them for simple alert systems. So, like, another team created a transgenic tobacco plant that doesn't remove toxins at all, but it turns white within hours when certain toxins are detected in the soil. Oh. So they can plant it, and then they'll know if the nearby oil refinery is actually contaminating the soil before like it happens. Like the plant version of a canary in a coal mine. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And hmm. they've been able to modify that to react to a variety of substances, and now it's an incredibly cheap way to test an area for contamination. So, I mean, in a way, I guess it means smoking is good for you. (laughs) We got to plant this tobacco, so you got to do something with it, I guess. I don't know. Well, it's the planting and then that, like, visual marker, but I'm assuming they're not going to actually consume that plant or burn it, right? I don't know. I think there could be a market for, like, haute couture white tobacco. (laughs) Get the hipsters on board. They can can make anything cool. Yeah, American Spirit White Buffalo Sacred Blend. Yeah, there you go. That I'm <laughs> I feel like starting already. <laughs> Not an endorsement of smoke. Right, right, right. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right, here's a little bit of a feel-good article. The BBC News reports that a hiker is alive and well after dying for 45 minutes. Ooh. Wow. Right? I mean, I'm assuming he wasn't actually dead. It was just one of those, like, clinical definitions of dead. I mean, where are you going to draw that line? Right, like, sure. If it's a clinical <laughs> definition of dead, are you, are you in fact alive or are you actually dead? Well, Michael Nipinski, aged 45, got lost in Mount Rainier National Park in freezing conditions earlier this month. He was found and airlifted to a hospital in Seattle in Washington state, and he had a pulse when he arrived at the hospital, but then his heart stopped. He essentially died while he was in the ER. 
So the medical team performed CPR and hooked him up to an ECMO machine, which is an extracorial membrane oxygenation machine. Mm -hmm. And this pumped blood from his body into a heart-lung machine that removed carbon dioxide and then back inside of him. So it kind of did the filtering for him. And after about 45 minutes, his heart started again. And then two days later, he woke up. Hmm. The trauma nurse, Whitney Holen, said he was crying and they were crying. And I'm fairly <laughs> sure I cried a little bit. It, it was just really special to see someone that we had worked so hard on from start to finish to then wake up that dramatically and that impressively. Wow. Mr. Nepinski, who is still recovering, told CBS that he had started hiking after overcoming a serious drug addiction. Hmm. I used to be a very unhealthy, sickly man and I got into hiking and it changed my lifestyle, he said adding that the medical staff had refused to accept he was gone. Quote, they did one heck of a job at keeping me alive. So how is this possible? What happens to the body in the cold, right? Mm -hmm. If the heart stops at normal body temperatures for too long, there's very little hope of survival due to brain damage. But in freezing temperatures, the brain and body can be protected by the cold because it stops them deteriorating. It's kind of like nature's cryo, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there have been other examples of adults and children surviving after spending long periods in very cold temperatures. For example, last winter, a woman was, quote, brought back to life by doctors after her heart stopped for six hours when hiking Whoa. in the cold of the Pyrenees. Wow. And this is super rare. They want to point that out. Normally, right. even in the cold, brain damage would have set in about after an hour. Mm -hmm. So doctors also use some of the same principles to cool the bodies of newborn babies to try to reduce the risk of brain damage after a difficult birth. Well, so, I mean, I guess in the six-hour case, are they claiming they didn't use an ECMO or are they saying like she was just laying in the cold? Preserved I'll be honest, they, they hyperlinked that one right, and right, I right. didn't follow the breadcrumb. Yeah, because ECMO machines are cool, but they've been around for a while. Like that's what they use when you're having a heart transplant or heart surgery where they have to stop your heart beating for the period of time that they are mucking around in there. And they just, it's like you have an artificial heart outside your body is all. Right, right. Yeah, for six hours, I'm really yeah, not that's sure a lot. what it was. <laughs> and, you know, I'd also be curious, like, she was brought back to life, but what kind of life was it? Was she fully conscious? Did she have any brain damage? Right, Did who knows? she have, you know, mm -hmm. suffer a stroke of some kind? Not something you, you know. want to test for fun. Yeah, yeah I mean, if it, <laughs> it happens, it happens, but try to prepare for situations like these. But I'm glad this one happened because it was a lot more uplifting than my monkey brain tampering <laughs> article. <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from NPR.org, and it's titled, Scientists Discover Outer Space Isn't Pitch Black After All. Ooh. Hmm. Yeah. Star Trek was wrong? I refuse to believe it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so if you look up at the night sky, and if you're away from city lights, you'll see stars, naturally. Mm. And the space between those bright lights is, of course, filled with an inky blackness. And some astronomers have wondered about all that dark space and how dark it really is. So Todd Lauer, an astronomer with the National Science Foundation's Noir Lab in Arizona, asks, is space truly black? He says if you could look at the night sky without stars, galaxies, and everything else known to give off visible light, does the universe itself put out a glow? It's a tough question that astronomers have actually tried to answer for decades, and now Lauer and other researchers with NASA's New Horizons space mission say they've finally been able to do it using a spacecraft that's traveling far beyond the dwarf planet Pluto, and they've posted their work online, and it'll soon appear in the Astrophysical Journal. So New Horizons was originally designed to explore Pluto, but after whizzing past it in 2015, the spacecraft just kept going, and now it's more than 4 billion miles from home, nearly 50 times farther away from the sun 
than the Earth is. And that's important because it means that the spacecraft is far from any major sources of light contamination that make it impossible to detect any tiny light signal from the universe itself. Hmm. Around Earth and the inner solar system, for example, space is filled with all these tiny dust particles that get lit up by the sun, which creates a diffuse glow over the entire sky. That dust isn't a problem out where New Horizons is, though, and the sunlight there is much weaker. So, to try to detect the faint glow of the universe, researchers went through images taken by the spacecraft's simple telescope and camera and looked for ones that were incredibly boring. Like, literally (laughs) just (laughs) the ones that were blank sky. Right. (laughs) Uh, So, Laura says the images were all of what you call blank sky. There's a sprinkling of faint stars. There's a sprinkling of faint galaxies. But it looks random. What you want is a place that doesn't have many bright stars in the images or bright stars even outside the field that can scatter light back into the camera. They then processed these images to remove all known sources of visible light, and once they'd subtracted out the light from the stars, plus scattered light from the Milky Way, and any stray light that may be a result of camera quirks, they were left with light coming in from beyond our own galaxy. There, they went a step further still, subtracting out light that they could attribute to all the galaxies thought to be out there, and it turns out once that was done, there was still plenty of unexplained light. In fact, the amount of light coming from mysterious sources was about equal to all the light coming in from the known galaxies, which Mark Postman, an astronomer with the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, tells us. So there may be some unrecognized galaxies out there or some other sources of light that we don't yet know what they are. Hmm. Michael Zemkov, an astrophysicist at Rochester Institute of Technology, who wasn't part of the research team, says they're saying that there's as much light outside of galaxies as there are inside of galaxies, which is a pretty tough pill to swallow, frankly. Mm -hmm. He says that for 400 years, astronomers have been studying visible light and the sky in a serious way and yet somehow apparently missed half the light in the universe. A few years ago, Zemkov and some colleagues analyzed New Horizons data in a similar way. Using fewer images, they made a less precise measurement, but it was still compatible with the current results. And he says it's very difficult to turn around and say to the astronomical community, like, hey, guys, we're missing half the stuff out there. (laughs) But he still buys the results and says that the work is really solid. Well, I mean, we're missing like a whole bunch of dark matter, too. Like if we're missing half Mm -hmm. the physical, it makes sense that we'd be missing half the light as well. Yes, exactly. And so that is one of the potential exotic explanations, which is there's some unknown phenomenon in the universe that creates visible light, and it's even possible that it's associated with dark matter, a mysterious form of matter that exerts a gravitational pull on visible matter but has never been seen directly. It could also be, you know, more traditionally just far more small faint dwarf galaxies and other faint regions on the outskirts of galaxies that our instruments just can't detect and so scientists aren't aware of yet. Or maybe there's some more dust out there interfering with the measurements. But the idea that dark matter emits light is much cooler, in my subjective opinion. Sure. So that is what I'm going to just choose to believe for now. That's not what the article (laughs) says. The article does not take a stance yet. Um... (laughs) Postman says, as a person who studies the universe, I really want to know what the universe is made of and what are all the components of the universe. It's a new measurement with a capability that they have because they're in a unique place with a camera on New Horizons that can exploit the darkness in that area. But still, he adds, even after all this analysis, it's still pretty dark. <laughs> I don't know. Like, go with me here for a second. We had that article a couple of weeks ago about the platypus glowing under UV light, right? So there are clearly oh. spectrums of light that we as humans cannot see. Yep. But imagine, mm-hmm. like, maybe that light is really obvious to a creature who can see that spectrum of light. And as far as they're concerned, like, the night sky is lit up as bright as a light bulb. 
right? Like they don't even see darkness at all. We're just these absolutely hindered little creatures who can't even see half the light in the universe. Like we're pathetic. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I buy it. That sounds cool, so I buy it. Right, right, right. That's what we're going with. It's all platypuses out there. Just. <laughs> I want that world. Yeah, I mean, maybe that's the true shape of the universe, just a giant cosmic platypus. <laughs> platypuses Aww. all the way down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right, well, this last one is one of those Mad Libs headlines that just gets better with every word. All right, <gasps> so so prepare yourself here. The title is Ponzi Scheme Suspect Uses Underwater mm-hmm. Scooter to Flee okay. FBI. Wow. And- <laughs> I'm in. I'm hooked. I got to hear more. That's epic. Yeah. So Matthew Piercy is an investment banker, sort of who was accused in a federal (laughs) indictment this year of running a Ponzi scheme that bilked investors out of approximately $35 million since 2016. The way he pulled it off is pretty typical. One of his company's family wealth legacy solicited investments in securities, cryptocurrency mining, and life insurance, while the other one, Zala Financial, raised funds through transactions that were, according to the Justice Department, typically styled as loans offering a fixed return, with the company's returns purportedly generated through algorithmic trading. And basically, it was one of those, I've cracked the system claims, you know, like Moneyball, but for investing, which is how he justified his unreasonably high rate of return for his investors. Because that's where these Ponzi schemes always get caught, is nobody makes money every time. But these guys are too dumb, and they're like, I do, and then they get caught. But so, of course, he hadn't cracked the system. He was just using the age old technique of paying off old money with new money. And like all Ponzi schemes, it eventually caught up with him. Piercy was facing 31 felony counts, including wire fraud, mail fraud, witness tampering and money laundering. Each count carries a maximum penalty of 20 years in prison. But when authorities went to arrest him on Monday, he decided not to go quietly. Instead, he jumped in his truck and led authorities on a chase through the streets of Palo Cedro, California, until he got to the edge of Shasta Lake, which is the largest man-made reservoir in California. At that point, he hopped out of his truck, removed something from the back bed, and waded into the frigid water in his street clothes, disappearing under the surface. (laughs) (laughs) That something was a red Yamaha 350 Li underwater sea scooter, which is pretty much what it sounds like. It's got a little seat and some handlebars, and it's got this big enclosed propeller at the back that can push riders through the water at a top speed of about four miles per hour, which is, you know... (laughs) What a getaway. (laughs) Yeah. And and yeah, I mean, on the one hand, you got to admire the guts of this guy. I mean, I'm sure in his mind, this was like the perfect James Bond escape. On the other hand, he's an idiot because it's a lake. <laughs> it's a lake. It's yeah. a landlocked. Yeah. Like, it's not like he went out to sea. There's a limited area of shoreline and he can't stay under there forever. And uh, sure oh. enough, federal agents just waited patiently until Piercy surfaced again about 25 minutes later. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he waded ashore and they, he was arrested. They noted it really wasn't too hard. They just watched where the bubbles went. Yeah. And in fact, when he finally gave up and waded ashore, agents had already called Piercy's wife to bring him some dry clothes for the arrest. So So thoughtful. They were just like, yeah, we got this guy in a lake. Just bring him some clothes because he's going to be cold. Like, 
<laughs> Amazing. Yeah. Oh, my so, gosh. And and the kicker to the whole article really is the photo. It's just, you know, his formal headshot. But I genuinely laughed out loud when his face rolled on the screen because he looks exactly like the kind of popped collar prep school coke addict who would think that this was a brilliant idea. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. He honestly, he looks a little bit like the fire Festival guy. So, I mean, maybe there's like <laughs> something genetic about being bad at scams. Like maybe there's a gene that makes your face look funny and also makes you really dumb about <laughs> getting away yeah. with fraud. I- I'm going to hazard a guess and say it has something to do with attaching itself to a Y chromosome. I know not all Y chromosomes. Right, but right, right. <laughs> overwhelmingly. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. The other thing is he had this in the back of his truck already. Oh, this so, was planned. Yeah. There, there was forethought in all. Yeah. He had the he dipped into his significant stolen funds to acquire this underwater scooter. He had time to plan and this is what he came up with. Amazing. (laughs) Amazing. So on brand. That's right. Well, we we wish him well, but not too well. He still deserves to go to jail. I don't wish him well. No, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) Not all podcasters. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include Deep Frozen Arctic Microbes Are Waking Up, Plant Evolves to Become Less Visible to Humans, and The Tragedy of a Ruined Telescope. So all that and more can be found on damninteresting.com. If you like what you've heard today, please go ahead and go to our Patreon and support us. You can find it at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.